Today on Schneps Connects, we have not just one of the most well-known and recognizable New York City elected officials, but certainly one of the top figures in American politics who has sparked a national conversation on many topics, including global warming and social economic equality. With that have come millions of loyal followers, but at the same time, she has been at odds with many, including those in her own party. She identifies as a socialist Democrat, and I know the word socialist can be scary to some, so I'm really happy to have with us U.S. Congress member Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who serves the 14th Congressional District, encompassing parts of Queens and the Bronx, on the show today to discuss what she stands for, her story growing up here in New York City, how she got to where she is, and what her goals are for the future. So Congress member AOC, it's so great to have you on the show. Of course, thank you so much for having me. So when you first took office, uh, it almost seemed as if you came out of nowhere and exploded onto the scene. But I think everyone knows that you don't get to where you are without a lot of hard work. So I personally would love to hear you know, your story growing up in the Bronx and when you first had the seed planted in your head that you wanted to run to be an elected official. Yeah, you know, um, my family goes back to the, you know, my family goes back in the Bronx three generations. We're originally from Puerto Rico, but my grandmother moved here um, in the 50s. My dad uh, was born in the South Bronx when the Bronx was burning. And, um, you know, he saw all these buildings coming down in this really tumultuous time for our borough. And when he was six years old, he always told me when he was six years old, that's when he decided that he wanted to be an architect. He wanted to help be one of the people that helps build the buildings back up that he saw really, you know, getting burned down when he was a kid. And so um, I grew up, you know, around that sort of ethos. And my dad grew up in the South Bronx. He went um, to you know New York City public schools, he he became an architect, and he decided to set up a small shop in the Bronx, and he helped small businesses, um, and he helped you know lots of folks just be able to to build out and and build buildings, either homes here or or elsewhere. And I was born uh, in Parkchester, in the Parkchester area of the Bronx, mm-hmm. and he married my mom, who was actually. Um, from Puerto Rico. She was like 19 when they met and uh, they were about, you know, she was 23 when they got married and then they got married in Puerto Rico and then they both moved back here to the Bronx and I was born a couple of years later um, in Parkchester. And very early on, um, my parents just got really worried about the educational inequities. You know, this was the late 80s and early 90s um, when schools were just in a completely different situation than they are even now. You know, the dropout rates were astronomical. My my mom was really concerned, and so um, so you know we they saved up kind of a ton of money. Uh, well, they didn't save up a ton. My whole family pitched in a ton for them at the time, I should say, sure. um, and uh, so that I could go um, so that we could live in like uh, about thirty minutes north in Yorktown. Um, and that's where I went to public school. And I, so I always grew up between these two worlds because my whole family was in the Bronx, my cousins, my dad's, you know, business and everything, um, was in the Bronx and we, we kept a foothold there. And so I was always growing up seeing the inequities of opportunity, um, between what we had in the Bronx and what we experienced, uh, in Yorktown. And, 
it was so clear from a really early age that, you know, my cousins in the Bronx, they didn't do anything differently than me. They were no more or less capable, but they had less opportunities um, and the quality of their schooling was different, et cetera. And so those kinds of inequities were, I guess, in the background of my head as a kid, but, you know, you don't click all these things together. I didn't grow up in even a, a super political household in a way. Mm-hmm. It was just, we were just trying to, you know, make ends meet and, and, um, and, you know, put together a life. Um, and it was, you know, when I was in high school, um, I think my family, they did everything that they could, you know, this classic American dream where you work really hard. You know, my parents, they, they, you know, my dad had started a small business. My mom cleaned houses. Um, and I grew up, you know, around all of that. And when I was in high school, my dad was uh, diagnosed with lung cancer mm-hmm. and, um, you know, to see how you can do everything right. You know, you can follow the whole script. You can save your money. You can start a business. You can do all of this stuff. Um, But how you can have just this tremendous life event and have it almost negate all of that really shows how there's just some very deep structural issues that we have. Um, but I went to college. We, we, you know, I, I, I did what I could to excel there. Um, my father passed away when I was in college, um, and then, you know, after I graduated, this was around 2008 during the Great Recession. And then all of a sudden, my mom is a single mom with two kids, um, trying to make ends meet, and uh, we were almost foreclosed on during that time. We almost lost our home, um, and. I think that that whole time was just extreme, you know, those moments of crises, they're so stressful, but they're also in a way extremely clarifying Mm -hmm. because it just went to show like how deeply are so many of our systems are so broken. Um, And we saw these bailouts that bailed out some of like these big banks Um, And we're told that that was to keep the economy afloat. But at the same time, millions of people lost their homes, they lost their livelihoods. Um, And that's when it really felt like there was something wrong going on. But even then, I never thought that I was going to run for office. In fact, I think in a way, I was almost cynical. (laughs) Because I said, you know what, like, this whole system is bought you know, there's all of these corporations that have and lobbyists and, and big banks that have all of this this influence in our politics. You know, is it even worth it? And so I I didn't even see myself running for office, to be honest. I um, I was doing a lot of grassroots organizing and I worked with kids and I worked with schools and um, I found that to be like the most gratifying work. I moved back straight back to the Bronx after I graduated and I decided that I wanted to uh, work with kids and work um, with educational organizing. And, um, you know, it wasn't until 2016. And, and during that time, I famously started working at restaurants, which is what, you know, most people know about my work history. But, um, but you know, I was working with, I was, I started working in restaurants to help my family, and to help us, you know, keep our house on top of everything else. And, um, and it wasn't until that time that I, you know, I started to kind of shake out of this idea, uh, out of this 
you know, almost cynicism about our politics, because if you don't try, you don't try. And I felt, I think that you get the most, you feel the most despair when you aren't doing anything, whether it's activism or organizing or helping your PTA or what have you. It's when you actually throw your hat in the ring that you start to feel hope and you start to work towards a better future. And, you know, I always believe in looking right at our backyard. And it was around that time that, you know, I was looking at our uh, current member of Congress and I felt like we could have done better. I feel like we could stand up for more. I felt like we could do better. And I thought to myself, you know what? I think I'm going to run. And sometimes, you know, it, you run to everyone runs for office to win, right? Like that's the point. But I also felt like if I could run for office and really run as and having running itself be as a service to our community to make sure that we're talking about the really important stuff, you know, how much people are getting paid, our ability to have healthcare, you know, rising rents in New York City that are making it harder for working families uh, to stay here, then it would have been worth it. And, you know, I'm an organizer by trade. And so we just worked our tail off. I knocked doors until there were holes in my shoes. And, um, and it turned out that even though we didn't have any money and we were standing up against this political establishment that everyone said is just so powerful, there's no way you can topple it. Um, we just kept knocking doors and more and more people started paying attention and more and more people were agreeing with us. And um, that's what happened. You know, famously, yeah. uh, you know, we we. Uh, overturned a 20-year incumbent that was extremely powerful in the party, which was shocking to uh, kind of the DC political establishment. And ever since then, I've just tried to make good on my promise, which is that um, I will never take money from corporate lobbyists. And I will always try to tell the truth as I see it and respect our community with my honesty and my advocacy, and to always, always, always put working families first. Well, you know, you aimed high and obviously we can see where that fire was started. But what did you think your odds were? I mean, going back there, I mean, you really went up against one of the most powerful Congress members mm -hmm. in the U.S., someone that was there for, uh, I guess, 10 terms. Who mm -hmm. really, you know, and maybe took for granted the fact um, that he was there so long. But I mean, what did you think were the odds initially? I knew that it was the longest shot of the longest shot. I knew that it was absolutely a Hail Mary throw, but I never felt that it was impossible. You know, it was one of those situations where I was like, there's maybe a 5% chance, you know, like that 95% odds that, you know, the incumbent will win. And that I probably had a 5% chance at pulling this thing off. But the reason I decided to do it was because, you know, I've seen where our community's at. And are we just going to accept the same thing over and over and over again, just because we think that just, you know, that we give up just because we see that the odds aren't stacked in our favor. And, um, and so, you know, I knew that the odds were super long, but I felt that the risk was worth it because it was really, really worth 
our community having a chance? Because so many people were scared out of running before that our community actually hadn't had a primary election in 14 years. So we didn't even have a choice for 14 years. People were intimidated and scared and, and dejected out of running. And so I said, you know, even if at the bare minimum, we could have an election um, where people actually have the opportunity to choose, even that is a better outcome than just having things decided by default for years and years in a row. And you really did make history. I mean, you were the youngest woman ever elected to Congress. Um, so I'm curious, what were a couple of things that you learned when you arrived in Washington, whether positive or negative, that you never really anticipated or expected? Yeah, I mean, it was really disorienting when I got um, to Washington. I really, I'd never spent much time in Washington aside from, you know, the occasional family road trip. Um, and so it was just so shocking in a lot of ways. You know, I think everyday people know and they feel how disconnected Washington can be from the rest of the country and the conversations and the decisions that are made. I mean, even with everything happening with COVID, right? It's like, how, how are, have we not done this better? Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I think one of the surprising things is that we know, and we've all sensed that, that disconnect. I campaigned on it. You know, I campaigned on that disconnect. And it, but it was seeing how it shows up um, in everyday life for a member of Congress that was really surprising to me. You know, the fact that there are so many people that are around that kind of call themselves experts um, that often advocate to shortchange working people, but the way that they make it sound reasonable and the way that they make it sound, you know, that this is what politically needs to be done, et cetera. That part to me was um, the most surprising. And also it was also the, the social kind of rules in Washington are, is very interesting. There's like a lot of decorum and, you know, coming from the Bronx, I feel like we have a very (laughs) unique way of being with people. Um, And I think that we're, you know, our community and just our culture, we're upfront and we're honest and we're kind of blunt sometimes. But I think the reason why we are like that, you know, as a city, but also just as a borough is because I think we consider it a form of respect, right? Like I respect you enough to tell you the truth and to actually answer your question. And then when I get to Washington, that's considered rude (laughs) or disrespectful. And so that's something that, you know, I think I also have to, that I continue to have to navigate because um, I rarely do things with the intent of being disrespectful, but sometimes people read that honesty. You know, if someone asked me a question, if a journalist like yourself asked me a question, I'm going to answer it and I'm not going to dance around it and I'm not going to try to give you a political answer. Um, but the reason I think you see a lot of politicians doing that is because the actual culture inside Washington um, penalizes you um, for honest, for that kind of blunt honesty sometimes. <laughs> well, I want to talk to you a little bit about social media because I'm in media and I know it's been a blessing <laughs> and a curse. Yeah. And it certainly has changed politics. Uh, I think, you know, particularly the way that um, politicians as yourself and others are able to communicate directly with their constituency. But I mean, you have a megaphone, right? I think you have mm-hmm. over 20 million social media followers. 
So with with one post, you literally reach more people than national evening news. And that's mm. really dramatic when you think about it. So I'd love your you know feedback and input in terms of how um, it's given you the ability to further your message and really how it's changed politics for the better and or worse. Yeah, exactly. I think um, you're absolutely spot on when you talk about it being both a blessing and a curse. You know, the, the blessing of it is that you know, in a lot of ways, social media has taken away uh, the gatekeepers that have historically, not just in journalism, but, you know, it, power gatekeepers, etc., that have prevented important information from getting out to the public. And now with social media, people are able to share information. And also sometimes as an elected official, um, if you feel Oftentimes, you know, I do feel like news coverage is designed, especially not even local news, but the big like, you know, TV news is centered on conflict. Right. And so you may just want to say something to say, hey, we need health care. And then the headline is always like this person is fighting against that person over X, Y, Z. And so the blessing of social media is that it does let me speak directly um, and be able to speak directly to our community and to our constituents, but they're not a replacement for one another, right? And I think that is sometimes where the curse comes into play, where people think that social media is a replacement for journalism. And they aren't a replacement for each other. They're two different things. Um, journalists, can fact check and they can um, and they can really see if a statement is true or false and uh, and a publication you know publications have editorial standards where they won't publish things if they are just patently false. If I say that the sky is green, I have the right to say the sky is green. I can go on Twitter and say the sky is green, but that doesn't mean that um, that a, a journalist or a news outlet has can't check that fact and say, you know, she's incorrect. Um, and so I think it, it, that is the blessing and it is the curse. It's also a blessing because from an organizing perspective, it's been such a powerful tool to organize. And, you know, most recently, one of the things that we were able to do is that I was able to, you know, use our email lists and use Twitter to recruit 11,000 volunteer tutors for kids in our district. That wouldn't have happened um, without the world of social media, um, because that is, you know, it's, it's me organizing for an end for our community. That's not really something that gets on the evening news. Um, but it is something that can, that you can use Twitter for, or, or any social media outlet for, um, to really create good. Well, you're going to have to connect me with whoever you know at Instagram because we're at QNS because we're QNS.com in Queens and we're at QNS on Facebook, but they wouldn't give us at QNS on Instagram. Oh, no. Okay. We'll have to figure it out. <laughs> you know, I think you mentioned before that sometimes good things come out of bad situations. I do feel that the mm -hmm. pandemic has brought light to real trusted news sources. And I think that'll be mm -hmm. a positive, you know, coming out of it. Um, one of the things I really want to understand better, and I think a lot of people in your district would like to understand better, is just as a democratic socialist, mm -hmm. if you could explain what that stance means in terms of capitalism, mm -hmm. in terms of corporations, and really small business, private enterprise um, in, in our district and across the country, 
and what you believe the government's role should be um, mm -hmm. when it comes to private business or small business or large business. Yeah, no, I, I, I think this is such a good conversation to have because, um, because I know that, you know, a lot of these words get used, especially uh, in the context of kind of political attacks where there's a lot of fear mongering. So I think one thing that's important is that is to acknowledge that there is kind of, I think, a, a huge generational difference in how people think about these terms. Um, and very understandably, you know, I think some people who grew up um, around the Cold War, etc., like really view, you know, they hear these words, democratic socialism, etc. And it sets off all of these alarm bells, right. Um, but for younger people and people, you know, in context of my life, I was born um, after the Berlin Wall fell. And so for younger people, what we grew up around were these endless wars, we grew up around, um, you know, the 2008 rece recession and bank bailouts and um, and, you know, lack of health care, but record health care profits, etc. And so, you know, I think it's important for us to, you know, all these headlines, uh, or all of these commercials that you see on TV that are designed to just, um, they're designed to just elicit just really strong reactionary takes from everybody, uh, for us to really understand each other. And so when I talk about democratic socialism, um, for me, I think someone who, you know, potentially may identify as a capitalist may hear what I'm about to say and say, well, oh, well, we believe the same thing. And so it's important to step out of just the, the, the textbook ideological frames. Um, because for me, what I believe is that I believe that, you know, human society has advanced to the point we are the wealthiest nation that has ever lived. We have technology, we have, um, you know, resources beyond our wildest dreams. And, but they are overly concentrated in such a small um, amount, among such a small amount of people that our day-to-day -day lives have become lives of scarcity, where we don't have enough, even though there technically is enough. And so I believe that there are certain things that we, we have now advanced to the point where we can work towards certain economic human rights. And this is actually you know, not a new belief, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, a lot of people don't know, had actually authored a second bill of rights that never got fully realized. Um, and that included the right to dignified retirement, um, which is where he started paving the way with Social Security, the right to health care, where he started paving the way with Medicare um, when it was first authored. But the original intention of the Medicare program was to start with our with our seniors and then expand the program, expand Medicare to all people in the United States. That was the original vision of Medicare when it was first established. And I believe in that as well. I believe that housing should be treated as a right first and as a commodity second. So what does that mean? That means that I prioritize someone's first home, someone's ability to stay in their, to, to, to live in their first home above someone else wanting a third or fourth home. And so how do we structure our laws to prioritize people being able to actually live in housing? Because what we see now, right, and we juxtapose that with our current system. And I think, you know, let's name this other kind of system in the room too, capitalism, right? What is capitalism? 
And I think sometimes we've never like questioned this water that we're swimming in. And so to me, what capitalism means is not a free market. It's not businesses. It's not that. It is capitalism is an ideology of concentrating capital at any and all human or environmental cost. And so, um, so what that, so like a lot of people think that they're capitalists, right? But if you're working to earn a living, you're not actually a capitalist in the capitalist system. What capitalists are, are people who are so wealthy that their money makes enough money for them to never have to worry about anything. <laughs> that to me is like the definition of that. So it's like these folks that, you know, are able to live their entire lives because their great, great, great grandfather, like invented sporks or whatever, you know, and they're living off of that. That is like, that is a, a, a the class of and concentration of wealth that we're discussing. So, you know, when we talk about free markets and we talk about small businesses. I actually think that this is, um, very much in the realm of what we champion. Um, because a small business to me, you know, I, this is what I grew up around. This is how my family was raised. Um, and small businesses, as we know, are often some of the most productive elements of a community. And if someone asked me, you know, what would I rather have in our backyard, um, a local business or a Walmart, I'm going to pick those five, 10 businesses every single time, because we know that they actually support families to have a real living, not just being paid, you know, extremely low wages, um, that they contribute back to their communities. You know, they're always showing up and sponsoring soccer teams and food drives and things like that, that there are benefits to small businesses um, that sometimes don't always show up on paper um, when compared to the big box folks. Um, but you know, when you talk about capitalism, right? Like technically the big box folks would be better, right? They can give you lower prices. They can um, quote unquote, create more jobs, but who cares about the quality of those jobs, right? You know, that, that's never what's considered. And so, you know, according to that for-profit model at all expenses, the Walmarts would be better than the small businesses. And I have the opposite belief. I believe that there are different benefits and different contributions that family businesses and local businesses make that actually make them better than the Walmarts. And so, you know, I, I know that there's a lot of folks that say, oh, you know, we shouldn't use these words, et cetera. But, you know, I think we don't always have the choice of using these words. I think the reason, uh, you know, I, people in the community know, you know, I don't run around and campaign on talking about socialism and things like that. I talk about the common sense things that our families need. Um, but I also grew up in a political environment where Obama was called a socialist for eight years. <laughs> so we kind of, I think younger people especially got desensitized to the word. Um, and so, you know, there's a really big difference in our generational reactions uh, when people talk about, uh, you know, socialism, democratic socialism, capitalism, et cetera. I mean, I feel like it's such a big issue. You could talk about it all day and I can ask you mm -hmm. a million questions, but, and I want to bring up a topic, which I'm sure you've beaten to death in all the interviews that you've done, but mm -hmm. I do want to talk because it kind of segues into that is Amazon with their plan when they were going to plant their flag in Long Island City. Mm -hmm. 
And I personally have an attachment to the community because we service the community through our uh, media, but I also sit on the board of the LIC partnership that advocates mm -hmm. for that community. And I started a flea market in an empty parking lot 10 years ago. And it was unique because I spent, you know, 12 hours a day on the Saturdays and Sundays just trying to get this started and do something positive for the community. Turns out that that parking lot was going to be the uh, headquarters of Amazon, <laughs> not just that, but the whole block. Yeah. Um, and in talking to people, Long Island City was kind of slow with foot traffic you know, along, mm -hmm. especially Vernon Boulevard, the major, I know that's outside your district, but still, mm -hmm. you know, more of a, a larger topic. And, you know, I always felt that the consensus was from people that live there and people that work there, that they wanted to see Amazon come um, just to be able to give the, the community a shot in the arm and, and be mm -hmm. able to bring infrastructure quickly. So, I mean, my, I guess my question is, I could only un totally understand Amazon's this behemoth it's a monster company. It's owned by the richest person in the world. Um, but, you know, why not get as much benefit out of Amazon as possible for, mm -hmm. for New York City and take advantage of whatever infrastructure we could get out of yeah. that? Yeah, you know, I think it's a it, it's it's a good um, discussion point to talk about. And, you know, as you mentioned, um, you know, this particular area of LIC is is not in my district. It's under uh, Carolyn. It's Carolyn Maloney's district. And so but my district does not our district doesn't start far away. It starts from sooty side. The, the other politicians that serve it, I think, are probably so scared of your one tweet. <laughs> That, yeah, so, that it's almost like you have the power to be able yeah. to have other people in the party follow you. Yeah, and so I, so, um, so one of the things that I that I one of the reasons that I bring that up, it's not to to deny that in any way, um, but one of the reasons that I bring it up is because for our community, um, a lot of our community, we are commuters, um, and we are getting killed on rent just our ability to even stay living in New York City is just, is, I mean, everyone can tell you, even before the pandemic, we're all, we've all been getting pushed out by skyrocketing rents from just this, you know, continuous um, speculative, like real estate speculation. And so when it comes to Amazon, there's a couple of things. One is that, you know, my, my issue um, which has continued to be my issue, is that we have endless amounts of money whenever we want to talk about giving the wealthiest companies and people tax breaks and giveaways and things like that. And this wasn't just a tax break for Amazon. People say, oh, you know, you don't understand the, the structure of the tax break. No, we were actually physically paying, giving money up front to build Amazon's campus for them, and while also giving them tax subsidies, the company tax subsidies, so that their tax dollars wouldn't go back to actually investing in the infrastructure that everyday people use, the subways, et cetera. Now, that being said, it was the subsidy that I was in main opposition to. And so when we actually come across on the other part of the line, the thing that, do, that people don't talk about is that Amazon ended up bringing those jobs here. Um, they did it without subsidy though. Um, so they've been hiring, they have been um, 
bringing these folks on, but also when we talk about um, these these jobs that they were promising, my huge concern is that the deal that was on paper, right? When we actually look at the deal that was on paper, there was no enforcement mechanism. Um, and I was afraid, and it looks like that they were selling false promises, that these jobs that they were promising weren't actually going to come and what they were going to do and what this deal was set up to do was for them to take a bunch of public money and not deliver on their end of the deal. And what we actually see with Amazon HQ2, um, because they they tried to go with two. So there was one that they had proposed here. And then there was another that they proposed here in Virginia, ironically, not far from where I live, uh, not far from where I stay, rather, when I come down to DC and do votes. And what we saw is almost like a natural experiment. And all of these promises that Amazon gave these these municipalities about jobs, about all of this stuff is not in fact rolling out as promised. And this has been happening over and over and over again, you know, and while all of these things that are promised aren't not are not only not coming, not only are they taking the money, but as I was, as I also feared, the rents are skyrocketing. And also property taxes are skyrocketing because people who already bought their home now have a higher valuation on the home that they want to live in, but they're now, so they have to pay higher taxes. And so cost of living is going up all over the place. Those people are being pushed out. And then the few, and then the jobs that they, the few jobs that they are bringing in, they're almost importing from other places. People are flying in, purchasing, you know, and 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 taking advantage of this real estate environment and other folks are are pushing out. So I don't have a problem with us figuring out these economic deals that will stimulate our local economy, but when when I actually looked up the fine print, there was no there was little to no actual repercussions if they didn't hold up their end of the bargain. If they didn't bring the people that they promised that they were going to bring, if they didn't make the jobs that they promised. And so I questioned it. And what I found very fascinating was that I came out against the deal as it was structured. The terms, I looked at it, you know, I consider myself, my job is to make sure that we protect our community and that we actually hold people accountable and deliver on the promises that they say that they're going to deliver. So that deal, as it was structured, I said, this isn't a good deal for the people. It's not, stru- it's not structured to hold them accountable if they don't hold up their end of the bargain, but we have to get our money out the door. And so when that happened, I said, I don't like the deal as it's structured. And then what Amazon did was not say, let's bring everyone to the table. Let's negotiate. Let's do this thing. They said, no, they said, it's either our way or the highway. And instead of negotiating, Instead of implementing, um, you know, make, instead of making sure that we're that they are, uh, you know, coming to to terms and working with the community and working with small businesses and things like that, they just said if we don't get everything we want, then we're not going to do anything. And then they're going to finance a multi-million dollar campaign. They're going to put billboards about me up in Times Square and all this stuff to attack the politicians that stood up for their communities. But you know, when I look back at it. There, there are just some moments where sometimes the right thing to do is not always the popular thing to do. And the popular thing to do is not always the right thing to do. And I think that this is one of that, that was one of those moments. And so, 
you know, I think we can always talk about this and we should talk about it because there will always be another Amazon. There will always be, you know, another one of these deals that that comes down the line because they're always getting proposed. There's a really famous one called Foxconn where um, where the state gave away $4 billion to Foxconn in a promise for thousands of jobs, tens of thousands of jobs. Foxconn took the money, they built their headquarters and never brought the jobs. And so the public was out $4 billion and had nothing to show for it. And so we need to have real conversations about how we structure these things in a way that actually deliver and don't just promise on delivering, but have it actually in the fine print and in the, in the legal ramifications of the deal. So any regrets or thought knowing now that we have a pandemic and there's so much job loss or do you, do you still kind of stand behind the position? You know, I think one of the things that we see here actually is that during the pandemic, you know, as I mentioned earlier, Amazon has been hiring a lot in New York City um, in the pandemic because of the increased amount of packages. One of the things that we've also been seeing, because we have a fulfillment center actually in our district in Woodside, is that the workers at Amazon um, have been coming forward and saying that their work conditions are very scary and abusive, that there are people who are testing COVID positive. There are warehouse workers that are testing COVID positive and that the Amazon warehouse managers are not telling other employees. I heard this heartbreaking story of this woman who lives with her mother and who, who is older and um, works at the Amazon warehouse fulfillment uh, facility that we have here in New York City. And um, they didn't tell her that she was exposed and her mom got sick and she doesn't go anywhere. You know, she doesn't hang out with her friends. You know, she's so focused on this. And so for me, when I say, when I say, how do we approach this job loss? It's not just that it's not the options aren't nothing or Amazon. I think the way that we should, should have been um, approaching this job loss, because when the deal came up, I said, where's, how about we do a $4 billion investment in small and local businesses? Like if we have 4 billion in tax breaks and direct investment for Amazon, that should mean that we have 4 billion in tax breaks and direct investment for local businesses and small businesses. And that it shouldn't only exist for the big box stuff, but this kind of investment should exist for everyday mom and pops. And so to me, the alternative is not Amazon or no Amazon. The alternative is what situation would we be in if we actually invested billions of dollars in sustaining, protecting, and um, and investing in small businesses and local infrastructure. And in that world, I think we're much, much better off, which is why we continue to fight the way that we're fighting. And in the short term, making sure that we're going to get, you know, I've been fighting for extensions on PPP, which hopefully, knock on wood, it looks like we're going to have a deal announced in the next 24 hours. Mm-hmm. And it looks like we're going to get PPP. Um, and that's to hold us over till January 20th. And then in January 20th, when we have a new president, that we go even bigger and bolder on family and small locally owned businesses. I have so many more questions to ask you. <laughs> your time is coming here. So I really want to touch base on, on the local district. So talk to me about what you're most proud of in terms of accomplishments for your district and what you see mm-hmm. for the year ahead for the district. Yeah, well, you know, I think... It's hard to pick what I'm most proud of. Um, you know, I think that there because there's legislative 
accomplishments, which are really great and important. You know, we were able to successfully shift um, millions of dollars into opioid uh, relief um, and uh, kind of uh, addiction counseling programs um, for our community and communities like ours across the country, which is, you know, just a huge crisis that isn't discussed enough. And I'm, I'm really proud of our work to be able to do that. But, you know, I think um, really one of the things that I'm proud of, of has been our COVID response. You know, we were our community was the epicenter of the epicenter. We were the hardest hit in the country. Um, there was a point where when COVID was first hitting, which is when we knew the least about it, when we were the most scared. When we didn't know more than, you know, when we didn't know what we know now about how contagious it was or how it spread, et cetera, where out of the top 10 zip codes in the United States of America uh, hit by COVID infections, five of them were in our congressional district, um, East Elmhurst, Park Chester, Allerton, um, Jackson Heights. And I am so proud of how we were able to organize our community. We issued a call to action. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's, and I, you know, I don't say me because this was everybody, you know, but we were able to help coordinate and facilitate, um, you know, personally fundraising a million dollars that went straight to food pantries and direct relief for families here in our communities, um, that we organized a rapid response check-in program, organized 200, over 200,000 community check-in calls. Uh, we fed, you know, almost 800,000 meals uh, delivered. And this was just, you know, our pocket in our office. And when you add that on top of all of the other relief that was going in our community, our, our communities really stepped up. And most recently, with the struggles in online learning, um, you know, as I mentioned, we, we've recruited 11,000 uh, volunteer tutors so that kids can get one-on-one -on -one tutoring um, so that, you know, they aren't, they aren't falling behind in just the, the difficulties and struggles of remote learning, which is just so hard, not just on kids, but on parents too. Well, there's so many other topics that I would love to talk to you and hopefully we can have you back in the future. Yeah. Pleasure to get to know you a little bit better and hear directly from you and share that with our listeners. So thank you so much for your time. It's greatly appreciated. Of course. Thank you. Thank you so very much. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Listen to a new episode of Schneps Connects every week, wherever you stream your podcasts or listen online at podcast.schnepsmedia.com.